This is Annie Berglund, cat owner, struggling vegan, and teacher of animal ethics. And you're listening to Seeing Animals, a little project to highlight the lesser known spaces where animals exist. Because I believe that when we start seeing animals, we start caring about them. I am at UC Davis in the offices of the Mir Institute of the Environment, and joining me is the Institute's director, Professor Ben Holton. So happy to be sitting with you here, Ben. Pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> um, so Ben is a climate change expert, which is excellent because I am far from that in every way. And today, I think we should just start out kind of by talking about how you got to where you are um, and how you uh, went from growing up in the Midwest. You're a Midwesterner as well, right? Correct. Yes. So how you um, grew up in the Midwest and then ended up getting a PhD in, was it ecosystem biogeochemistry? Oh, yes. That is... I. I had to practice that. <laughs> um, and then and then being in the forefront of conversations about climate change here in California. Well, first of all, pleasure. Thank you. It really is an opportunity here for me to talk to some folks back in the Midwest. <laughs> and uh, I grew up in Wisconsin, a long line of farmers. Yeah, originally, my family, when they came over from Europe, established in uh, Kansas and Ohio. And my grandfather uh, had an eighth grade education taught himself oh. how to breed cattle and was actually winning prizes at the state fair in Ohio. So uh, then they moved to Wisconsin, uh, kind of in the middle of the state in Black River Falls. And mm -hmm. that's where my father grew up with his brothers. Uh, there they kind of raised uh, turkeys and my uh, grandfather was involved in grain distribution. So, uh, you know, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I spent a lot of time around farms and, uh, you know, would even work on farms. I think I could name all of the kinds of cows uh, that was like a test. I remember it, nice. it was when I was in uh, elementary school, mm -hmm. by like fourth grade, we had to name all the cows and we'd go out to the farm. So, you know, that left an imprint on me. And then I I actually found myself spending t a lot of time in Minnesota too. Um, and, you know, kind of grew up in more of an urban environment mm -hmm. where it was very, very different than a farming community, a much more industrial. And uh, that had a huge impact on me as well. It started to give me a deeper appreciation for some of the systemic challenges that face our urban environments too, and especially um, people of color, mm -hmm. and um, so that was that was fantastic. It gave me a love of hip hop, which I usually don't talk about, but that's like <laughs> yes. still my favorite genre, nineties <laughs> uh, hip hop. Um, so, how did that lead me to climate change and where I got my my PhD? It's a good question. I think it's a path I could not have uh, predicted. Mm. I was fascinated with fishing. I love the outdoors. And I went to my undergrad at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point College of Natural sure, Resources. Sure, beautiful, yeah. And I was like, oh, well, I like fish. Maybe I'll do fish management. Um, it took a couple classes and then I'm like, yeah, not for me. But I was, I always loved chemistry. Mm. And I remember I was in first grade. Um, my parents brought me the, bought me this chemistry set. And I would do these little <laughs> chemistry experiments. And it was totally unsupervised. And probably today's standards, I think they get in a lot of trouble. But You were like back seven. In the, yeah. <laughs> back in the you know, late 70s, early 80s. And um, I would just sit in my room and do all these little chemistry uh, experiments, you know, getting gases to appear and things like that. And uh, luckily, no, never blew the house up. But... It was odd that my family chose to do that, given that you know, we were, we weren't really um, an intellectual family in the mm -hmm. conventional sense, but in the what I would say traditional sense, coming from farming and that, some of the smartest people I've ever met. Sure. And yeah. my dad uh, played professional football for a year, so there was all this sort of like attention and focus on sports, mm -hmm. and yet 
something must have been weird about me. <laughs> I always ask, why did you buy me this chemistry set when no one in the family was even <laughs> thinking about academics? Because you were different, Ben. Mm. And uh, so ultimately, I think that that somehow fused into uh, a passion, mm-hmm. a deep passion for science and creativity and being on the front lines of discovery. It's intoxicating. And I um, got my undergrad in chemistry, aquatic chemistry, and then went on and I did a master's degree in engineering because I wanted to get more quantitative and like, what is this math all about and how can we use it? And I, I had a fascination with mathematics. But I started applying mathematics and chemistry and biology and physics to an exploration of natural ecosystems. And ultimately, that led me to my PhD at Princeton in ecosystem biogeochemistry <laughs> in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. So that, that was a fascination. Now, what does the living part of the planet look like? How does it interact with the chemistry? How can we use mathematics and engineering principles to understand, explore, solve challenges? Um, and then finally, I, I found my way out into the West Coast, where I was at Stanford as a postdoc in global ecology for a couple of years until I ended up at uh, UC Davis. I've been here ever since, since 2007. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure in those 12 years, you've seen a lot of changes to here as far as climate change and its effects in this area as well. Yeah, we've dangerously interfered with the climate system. Yeah. And uh, climate change has entered our living rooms. So a couple points on that. First, dangerous interference to um, a non-scientist might mean, oh, well, we're seeing disasters. And that is part of it. Dangerous interference from a scientific perspective means that our ability to predict the extremes mm. is being reduced right now because we have manipulated the system so quickly. We don't quite understand how it's going to respond, but we can say with a high degree of assurance mm. unequivocally that our greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuel combustion, oil and gas, mm-hmm. coal, that is largely why we're seeing the changes in climate today, which is heating the planet and giving rise to extreme risk, mm-hmm. whether it's a hurricane wildfire events, sea levels rising and encroaching upon our communities, hurting people, massive heat waves like those we just saw in India, Mm -hmm. where thousands and thousands of people were exposed uh, to the devastation of a heat wave, Um, crop failures around the planet, our farming community. You look at um, Iowa, uh, parts of the Midwest this year, the flooding that they experienced, they've never experienced before. Mm. Farmers who have been around for hundreds of years over there. And that's what we're starting to see. And it's entered our living rooms and that here in California, we cannot, we don't have the luxury of doubt. Yeah. I mean, when there's a community that's only a couple hours north of here, where 87 people die Mm. from a fire, uh, uncontrollable wildfire, bigger than any that's ever occurred in the history of California's record, costing an estimated $20 billion of damages, the kids lost their schools so on and so forth, businesses, families destroyed, uprooted, people suffering from mental health challenges like PTSD. Sure. Now PG&E is shutting off power to people because they're going bankrupt. That's the big producer of energy. That's a single event led to all that. Right. That is what climate change looks like. That's the ugly face of climate disaster and risk. And that's where we are today, Mm -hmm. right now. So in California, we take this issue seriously because Mm -hmm. we cannot afford to ignore what's going on. Yeah. I think in the Midwest, it's hard to maybe empathize with a lot of these issues too. It's not, it's, it's, we're aware of them, but it doesn't impact us as 
obviously as directly as it does here. And and being in that unique situation, it seems like California has also situated itself well as being one of the one of the leading economies in the world, but also mm-hmm. one of the leading innovators in the U.S. for um, study and research of climate change. I think you know California has been a leader in climate policy. It mm-hmm. started under Schwarzenegger, who is a Republican. And he established what's called AB 32, which was the most aggressive legislation to reduce greenhouse gases and other pollutants that hurt people, harm our health when we breathe the air. Um, Then Governor Jerry Brown came in and took that to the next level. And California suddenly became one of the global leaders, if not the global leader, in thinking about climate policy, developing a way to price carbon Mm -hmm. so that you have to pay for your pollution and uh, so on and so forth, and green technology innovation. And one thing that we've seen has been super exciting, our agricultural community is leading the way on what it means to be climate smart and how we can solve the challenge by working uh, with better practices in mm-hmm. farming, uh, ranching, and things like that. So that is California, you know, and yet we're a tiny drop in the bucket. We are a big part of the economy. Some people say the fifth largest, some people the seventh. It's a big economy, mm-hmm. a lot of innovation. Uh, a lot of wealth, mm-hmm. and yet we're 1% of global emissions. Wow. So California becomes carbon neutral. Guess what happens? The world continues to go in the same direction. Right. This is why we understand in California that it's not only about what we're doing here, it's the model and it's our ability mm. to network that model outside of California as quickly as possible. Make it something that places like the Midwest would want to encourage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, going back to the Midwest real quick, you know, yeah, the climate impacts have not been as extreme in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And I used to tell my family, like, don't move because you guys are in one of the spots where you haven't seen as significant amount of heat, you know, hot temperatures Mm -hmm. as you do in other places. There's a lot of water Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the Great Lakes. And, you know, in some ways you could argue that agriculture could expand um, in environments where it's colder, like uh, Wisconsin, parts of Minnesota. But yet, I think there will be devastating consequences when some of these, you know, we already start to see viruses are moving north. It's going to follow the changes in heat. Because a lot of time, viruses and disease, they're held back by the uh, the low temperatures. Mm-hmm. And so, as we, as we lose those low temperatures, suddenly they can move northward and into um, environments where they can have consequences. Yeah. Yeah, it's bleak. <laughs> it's bleak, but, uh, you know, we can get into it. I, I actually call myself a climate optimist. Good, yes. Because I believe that while the challenges are urgent mm-hmm. and they are large, this is probably the biggest opportunity for humanity, yeah. maybe ever, on a global stage. Yeah, Solving this challenge will fundamentally make or break us. Mm-hmm. And I hope it makes us into a better a better uh, species on this planet that we, you know, we have to recognize there's many other species we live with. We all come from the earth. We like to think we don't. We're not separate. And ultimately, if we learn that message and we we create new kinds of economies that Mm -hmm. recognize that principle, it's going to be great for our kids in the future. Yeah. Now, we talk in my animal ethics class about how humans, um, the big distinguisher of us from animals is that we have the capacity for such extremes. Like we can either, we can destroy at the greatest level, or we can also, um, create a bunch of good out of our actions. And it's just hoping that we're, our trajectory is in that direction rather than destruction. Um, and that that would set us apart. 
going back to some of the ways that you're working here with farming and uh, farmers and ranchers, um, could you kind of flesh that out a little bit for our listeners and talk about some projects that are really inspiring and interesting for you and, and ones that you're spearheading? Yeah, happy to. So a new project we started is called the Working Land Innovation Center here in the Muir Institute. And we received a $5 million grant from the state that came from the carbon pricing mechanism, the cap and trade fund. Oh, sure. And that's um, basically economic incentivizing of reducing pollutants. Is that correct? Yeah. So basically, it says that rather than having an economy that doesn't recognize the waste product of CO2, you have to pay for that. Okay. And as the economists say, that which is not paid for is overused. So in a big picture, why do we have CO2 that continues to accumulate in the air uh, year after year? It's because we're not paying for it. Mm-hmm. Well, we're paying for it. Society pays for it in climate risk, natural disaster, so on and so forth. It's linked to uh, greenhouse gas emissions. But the individuals who are producing it don't pay for it. Right. Well, a cap and trade market is a fancy way of saying, let's put a price on carbon. Let's do it through the free market. So we're, it's not the same as a regulation. Mm. And then the free market starts to determine the price of that carbon based on allowances and an exchange. And so um, as these industries come together, they kind of say, okay, I'm willing to pay this much. I'm going to bid this much. And then ultimately it sets the price. Right now it's about $18 per ton of CO2. Okay. So that's generating revenue in the state, which then goes back to help vulnerable communities mm-hmm. with projects gives them access to green technology. And there's a small amount that's available for research and development. And so we got a $5 million grant to establish this innovation center. And what we're trying to do is, can we build a carbon farm? Okay. Can we actually farm carbon from the air and do that in a way that also benefits food production? How does that look like? (laughs) How do you farm carbon from the air? It's kind of interesting. You know, first of all, you know, in my estimation, the big problem with greenhouse gases is that we can't see them we Mm. can't smell them and we can't taste them right like if we had this much garbage building up on our sidewalks we would immediately take care of it that's we do do that right Right. yes exactly take your trash out yeah well do you know that if you think about plastic pollution which is a huge deal let's say we're this is just an average estimate about a billion tons of plastic pollution each year produced by the planet okay not good (laughs) 44 billion tons of CO2 are emitted each year. 44 billion (laughs) tons. So we can't see it. And yet that is the challenge. Mm. So there's all this CO2 that's accumulating. We have to quickly, and we are seeing some progress, but not fast enough, move to renewables that cut the emissions. But we also have to extract that carbon dioxide out of the air. Mm -hmm. And we want to take that CO2, and rather than viewing it as this big waste product, can we turn it into something that's good? Right? Can we create a new economy where we extract the carbon dioxide and we farm it? So what this looks like uh, in some of the projects we're working on is we're taking rock dust. Okay. Okay, rock dust. What is rock <laughs> dust? Well, what does that have to do with anything? Rocks are boring. You know, no, actually rocks are fascinating. They have all these nutrients and elements inside them. And if you think of the soil, which is our foundation, that's our food foundation, mm-hmm. um, a lot of it is com- uh, derived from rock weathering reactions as they break down. Sure. And so we're taking rock minerals from the mining industry, we're applying it to the soil, and each time these rock minerals break down, they absorb CO2 from the air. But they're releasing nutrients to the crops. And as they release nutrients to the crops, the crops grow bigger, we produce more food, uh, it's more efficient because water use is, is enhanced 
through some of these reactions. And ultimately, we produce a carbon farm. So we're driving real benefits for our growers because mm -hmm. they get better yields, better mm -hmm. water use, and real benefits for society because we're pulling CO2 out of the air each time these reactions happen. Other materials, we're taking compost, which is a waste product, mm -hmm. and we're putting that back into the soil. That's kind of a regenerative agriculture where you're restoring the organic matter in the yeah. soil. And that organic matter has a lot of carbon in it, and it stays trapped in the soil for decades. Okay? And then things like biochar. Biochar is essentially taking organic material, and you hit it with a really hot temperature, and then it starts to look like charcoal. Okay. Well, that now is extremely difficult to break down for uh, little critters living in the soil, like microbes. Mm -hmm. And so you can add that back to the soil, and it could stick around for hundreds of years in the soil itself. So we're taking, for example, trees that have been um, that have died from things like uh, previous uh, drought and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You can take those trees, you can extract them from the forest, so re you reduce fire risk on communities. You char them very quickly, and then you put them in the soil. So win-win. Help them with fire, help them with carbon sequestration. And then when that biochar is in the soil, it has properties that help the crops grow better. So it's all about win-wins. You yeah. know, carbon extraction, carbon farming. How many win-wins can we produce? That's what we're trying to accomplish. So we have about 100 acres of experiments with farmers, and we're working with some uh, tribal partners too uh, in the state of California and, uh, you know, it's the biggest, most ambitious project that we're aware of. And we're hoping that it uh, results in really good benefits. How long has this been going on? How long has this project been in development? And mm -hmm. how long before you think you'll you'll kind of get beyond a more experimental phase and maybe get into bringing that elsewhere beyond these spots that you've already designated? Great. No, terrific question. I mean, ultimately, this is a proven, these are proven technologies. So mm -hmm. let me, big picture. We live on a planet called Earth, <laughs> we call it. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We also call it the Goldilocks planet. Yeah. So I'm sure maybe your uh, your listeners here understand, and there's the just right bed, mm -hmm. the just right porridge. That's Goldilocks. Okay. Earth is just right. Why is it just right? Because we have a climate that for billions of years has allowed us to have liquid water. Mm -hmm. right? You don't find that on Mars where it's too cold, and you don't find that on Venus where it's too hot. And you can say, well, why is that? Well, part of it is clearly because where Earth is in distance-wise to the sun puts us in this nice sweet spot. Mm -hmm. But it's not just that. It's actually the fact that rocks, mountains are interacting with the atmosphere. And when they interact with the atmosphere and the CO2 in that atmosphere goes into the water that goes into the rocks, that produces an acid called carbonic acid. That acid then interacts with these rock minerals and it turns that carbon from the atmosphere into things like limestone rock. And you Midwest know all about limestone rock. We love There's limestone. Yeah, everyone loves limestone. <laughs> Where did it come from? Well, we say, oh, it's ancient seafloor. It's ancient this. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, all those rock weathering reactions eventually go to the ocean and then they produce limestone. Limestone is calcium carbonate. So it has a CO2 that's now been trapped. Now, that process happens slow, okay? <laughs> and not going to solve climate change. <laughs> Bummer. Now we're talking millions of years, you know, these reactions mm. happen that help stabilize the buildup of CO2 naturally so that the Earth's climate doesn't spiral out of control and have a runaway greenhouse effect or something like that. Well, if we pulverize the rock into very fine powder, now we can create a lot of surface area for these reactions to happen very quickly. And when you add it to the soil... 
where you have a lot of living organisms, they also help to facilitate the breakdown of those rocks. And so we're taking that silicate rock and it interacts with the CO2 and the carbonic acid to form carbonate rocks. So we store that carbon in the soil. Proven technology. <laughs> but how can we take advantage of that? And so a lot of what we're into is sort of natural climate solutions. How fast can they scale out? Well, that's really the question. You know, we have these big demonstrations in California, 100 acres. 100 acres is meaningless compared to the global carbon uh, cycle. We need to scale this out into all of Earth's croplands. You know, 11% of our planet is used for cropland. So let's say we put this kind of rock material and took an average estimate uh, we'll tell you, put it on all of the croplands on the planet. We think you could get anywhere between 4 to 10 billion tons of CO2 removal. That is, Those are really big numbers. To put that in context, that's like all of the United States emissions and then some. <sighs> could that happen tomorrow? No. But we need that to happen in the next 30 years to avoid the worst climate risk. We have to farm carbon from the air. Mm. Otherwise, um, all the science is telling us we'll push the planet way beyond 2 degrees and into an area that massive human suffering will take place and we don't want mm -hmm. that especially us in, in more privileged areas where we won't see that happen right away yeah you know we have this built-in resilience um, because we have economic systems we have social nets obviously they're not working for a lot of people mm -hmm. in the united states we have homelessness we have other challenges we have uh, you know the number one most correlated factor a recent study said between pollution and communities is race so our communities uh, in urban environments, especially uh, people of color, they're exposed to way more pollution uh, than typical um, white people in the United States. Now we go globally, and we know we're privileged compared to most places. I go to sub-Saharan Africa. They're suffering major climate impacts already. Mm -hmm. And droughts, things that's already hard for them to produce food. We're seeing wildfires, mm -hmm. a season like never before, all across Australia right now. Uh, India, again, going back to the heat waves, so on and so forth. So there's many populations that will experience the worst impacts compared to the uh, the more privileged populations. And that's a fundamental injustice, in mm -hmm. my opinion. It needs to be corrected. So we have to lead the charge on carbon extraction because it's our carbon waste yep. that's causing the problem, not theirs. Hmm. And then spreading that quickly, you're right, yeah. Cooperating and <laughs> developing new pathways of... Um, of working together, we're stronger together. Mm -hmm. Can we become stronger together, not only in the United States, which is a real challenge right now, but globally, can we become stronger together? Yes. Yeah, I think that's possible. Uh, that's what climate, climate can bring out the best in us, as I said before, but it could also bring out the worst in us. Uh, with this project, with um, is this would this be considered carbon trapping as in the soil? Is that is that yeah carbon <laughs> capture? You know, sure. There's different varieties of carbon capture. There's things like direct air capture. These these giant CO2 sucking machines that convert the CO2 into you know a concentrated form that you can then put underneath down and in, deep into the geology of the planet. Or you know, <laughs> what I'm imagining is bizarre. What yeah, that it looks. Look there's like. big fans that you know concentrate it. You have to remember if you take like a a liter of soil or you take, uh, sorry, a liter of air mm -hmm. um, and you think of the amount of CO2 in there, it's 400 part per million. So that's a tiny fraction. You know, that means for every million molecules, only 400 of them mm -hmm. are CO2. So you got to sieve it out of there. That's not easy. You have to find ways to do that. And there's sort of chemical advances. Uh, there's all sorts of approaches people are working on. Concrete 
that you can manufacture that absorbs CO2. These are all forms of carbon farming. It doesn't just mean classic farming, but as many ways as we can, working in concert, that's what we need to solve the challenge. Mm. And it does seem, you were mentioning before, it's a win-win. Um, so you're partnering with local ranchers and farmers and communities right. um, because it they look at the long run too, right? And they're saying, we want to continue this for what we're doing here uh, for years and years to come. And this is the best way to do it. Are there any drawbacks at all initially with cost and um, just kind of the overall idea of having these experiments done on, on your land? Terrific. Yeah, really good question. So... You know, when we go and meet with our farmers, mm-hmm. um, and look, not all farmers are the same. So I'm using this word generally, just like not all academics are the same or <laughs> so on and so forth. Like there's a, not all people in a religion are the same. We have this tendency, but for, for the sake of this conversation, the farmers that I have been interacting with mm-hmm. are excited about the idea that they can get better price points because they're really worried about, you know, producing food in a way that they get margins on return so they can continue to purchase the vehicles they need, um, support the labor they need, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think in California, um, we're in this unique position where they're also interested in the possibility of storing carbon in the soil. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we reach out to these communities and, and our ranchers, we're also working on compost additions um, where you can take green waste and manure, um, which is also uh, builds up in parts of California and can produce uh, environmental risk. But we can repurpose that, add it to the soil, Soil gets healthier, healthier soil produces more forage biomass that can help with uh, free range dairy cattle. Um, And there's all kinds of ways you can do this. You know, I think we got locked into kind of an industrial complex approach to producing food. And I think that now there's a recognition that while that did produce maybe some economic benefits, um, there's also some negative consequences for long-term sustainability of farming operations of the environment and, you know, farmers want to help. So I think this is a case where we're, we're trying to say, what would that look like economically along the life cycle of a product? And you ask the question about, was it expensive? You know, that really comes down to the question, what benefits do they get relative to the amount we add? And we don't know the answer to that yet. Mm -hmm. We believe the economics will work out really well for them, but we're testing that and we're making sure that's true. With real farmers, this is not like some lab experiment, okay? <laughs> we are out there. One of the farms we're working with, the Bulls Farm, has 11,000 uh, acres of production. Wow. All a variety of crops, some organic, some conventional. Um, they also have a one megawatt facility of solar. Mm. The mine we're working with is like 80% solar powered. So our carbon footprint along the full life cycle of the materials to the soil is really low. And... I think that will give us a, a good opportunity to understand, like, what's the maximum benefit you can get with these approaches? You know, given all of this, what can we do as um, some of my listeners are students in Minnesota, right? Mm. What can they do to reduce some of their impact or um, if they want to engage with this topic more or even in the lens of animal ethics or just considering animals in the equation, mm. what opportunities are there for us? Yeah, so... You know, and that's a that's a fascinating set of issues. I think this is where the debate should be, first of all. Mm. The debate should not be, is climate changing? Is climate changing because of our CO2 emissions? That should not be in the debate because mm. it is unequivocal. The evidence has been based on hundreds of years of exploration going back to a 
female scientist in upstate New York, uh, Eunice Foote, who really established that CO2 traps heat and it can cause climate change. There were global calculations by uh, Arrhenius, this famous scientist from Sweden back in the late 1800s, showing that if we double CO2 in the atmosphere, we'll probably raise Earth's temperature by about two to three degrees, which is exactly what we're seeing. Okay, so now we have all these fancy computer models, but science <laughs> debate this. We're not debating that anymore. We are debating where are the best solutions and how quickly can we mobilize them and how and where are trade-offs. Mm -hmm. Individually, we know there's a lot of things people can do. You know, you can electrify your vehicles. Maybe you can invest in renewable energy that can be expensive. Mm -hmm. You can take a bike instead of uh, driving your car. Um, maybe the way you eat, you can find sources of food that have lower carbon footprints, yep. either because you're choosing a diet like that, which is a choice people can make, or maybe you're working, uh, you find a farm that's using really sustainable practices. It's restoring organic carbon in the soil with a dairy operation. You know, that can happen too. Mm -hmm. Or with, you know, maybe there's, you want to eat meat and that's totally great, but there's sustainable approaches and then there's non-sustainable and then there's animal welfare that we want to be considered of too. So choice matters. Of course, no one person's going to make a difference, okay? Not even a city is going to make, quote unquote, a difference. But I don't think about it that way. This is the way I think about it. I don't know which CO2 molecule I've saved <laughs> is the one that ultimately helps protect that sea creature mm -hmm. that is losing its shell because of ocean acidification and CO2. Mm -hmm. I don't know which one it is. Mm -hmm. So let me not discount. I don't want to say I can do it alone. Clearly, that would be foolhardy right <laughs> but i also don't know which co2 molecule it is that's being beneficial so the best thing i can do mm -hmm. is be very mindful about the choices i'm making and engage in cooperation there's collaboratives now that have developed you know your university may have one you guys could start one mm -hmm. there's a network this this morning i spoke at a, a group at uc davis's campus they did 24 hours of climate they're tied in with a larger consortium of student groups and they had students there for 24 hours. I came at the very end. I wasn't up that long. <laughs> I wasn't pulling all nighter <laughs> with them. But, uh, you know, there's all sorts of engagement opportunities, I think, where we can build communities that are climate smart. Mm -hmm. And it should be grassroots. And guess, you want to know how you can make the biggest impact? Two ways, science tells us. One, talk about it. Talk about climate change with your friends, with your relatives, with people who disagree with you. Doesn't matter. Talk about it. Mm -hmm. Talk it through. Figure out why there's disagreement. What is it? Second, vote. Yeah. Vote in a way that you put your climate interests first. Okay? This is the challenge of our time. I say that because it affects everything. It affects the food we grow. It affects, you know, our natural ecosystems. It affects um, water. It affects the air we breathe. Uh, it affects our own health infrastructure, everything. It's the challenge of our time. It should be top on the list of voters. And then you have to figure out, well, who has the best solutions that I'm going to vote for? But I would argue that you, sh you have to be really cautious about voting for people who are denying the existence of a science like this. Mm -hmm. We've seen the dangers of that in the past with cigarette smoke, HIV, all these things. There was no scientific debate, but the politics grabbed it. This is not a political issue. Right. But right. there are ways you can vote to make sure your interests are being heard. And that's what I would encourage everyone to think about. Yeah, it's a dangerous reality we live in where this has become partisan. 
absolutely should never be it was not partisan back in the early 90s it was actually republicans leading the charge on solving this challenge Mm -hmm. special interests have entered the equation and we know what special interests can do to society and i think we need to understand it's there's nothing you know the climate system could care less if you're a republican or democrat or independent Mm -hmm. it does not care it doesn't matter it doesn't care if you're jewish it doesn't care if you're christian it doesn't care if you're you know of islamic faith doesn't matter doesn't matter if you're an atheist we're all on this planet and this is about humanity because nature will survive but what kind of society do we want that's the question and we have time to fix the problem but the longer we delay the bigger the risks get for us and we owe it to we owe it to our own communities and communities across the world to be conscientious with our actions because every action lives in permanence, right? Every Absolutely. action or inaction continues on. It does. And, you know, even though nature tells us that recycling and cycles happen, mm. I think you're right on. You know, John Muir, at the yes. Muir we're at the Muir Institute. <laughs> the namesake. Yeah. So he said, you know, if you pick out anything by itself, you find it hitched to everything else in the universe. Mm. I think that's a super important thing for people to remember, but it's more than that. How are we connected is a key question. Mm-hmm. What influence do we have on others? with the decisions we make, okay? And recognizing the interconnectedness, that is, that's what's ultimately going to be the 21st century in my mind. We're going to reconnect with each other and with nature, and that's going to save the day. Yeah. And that's what we're learning right now, because if we don't, we'll do it at our own peril. Yep, yep. You know? <laughs> we have an option to be a parasite or to be a part oh, of man. the ecosystem, right? <laughs> yeah, we're part of nature. I was hoping, you know, if, if I'm made up of phosphorus and carbon and hydrogen and <laughs> DNA and all this stuff. It's the sort of time. Where did that come from? Well, look, the sun does not produce those things. It's not big enough. It's a wimpy little star. We know that all those elements like iron and phosphorus and things that we need in our DNA, that came from previous explosions, mm-hmm. supernovas, that ultimately generate back to when the universe first formed. We are connected scientifically. Right. So this is a scientific principle, and it can also be a spiritual principle, Mm. right? Spiritually, or you might have religious views or whatever it is, understanding compassion, Mm -hmm. love, values. Mm -hmm. That is what this is all about. Let's put our values on the table. Mm -hmm. Say, where does that lead us? Thank you so much for your time, Ben. It's been really great to talk. (laughs) Um, And thank you again for giving us some options in the Midwest of things that we can do and um, and kind of directions that we can go. And and it's very convicting, very challenging, but I'm glad that we've come at this in a very optimistic way as well. And knowing that even a little bit of what we can do does have an impact. It does. And uh, for all your listeners out there, you know, keep up the fight, you know, (laughs) bring it back. Talk about climate. Think about it with your faith groups. This is a really important thing. Faith can lead the way on this. It's mm-hmm. been shown. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you're uh, into the Bible, the Bible tells you about Earth and what it means to us. Mm-hmm. So we have to we have to consider our values. And if you're not religious, you already maybe know our, how connected we are, anyways. So that's that's where we're headed. And I'm excited that uh, this is this is the great opportunity of our time. It's mm-hmm. a great opportunity. It's sad, but it's a great opportunity. Mm. Thank you. Pleasure. Hi, this is Sam from Pushkin's Bakery in Sacramento, California. Come try our amazing vegan cupcakes, delicious sweetbreads. Thanks for listening to Seeing Animals. <laughs>